0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to begin the, uh, the show today. Oh, uh, Mark and Jody Emery will be with us at the end of this hour. And uh, Mark arrested in Montreal because of the cannabis culture stores that he opened in the city of Montreal, six stores. And Montreal police arrested him, criminally charged him now, released him. And, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, Mark and Jody have been on the show before. We talked to Mark when he was in prison in the United States. And um, my question to Mark is, you're not surprised. You can't be surprised that the Montreal police would react the way they did. But we're going to begin with, uh, with mainstream media. And a great deal has been said, and a great deal has been written, and a great deal has been tweeted, and a great deal has been commented on this program— about mainstream media, and quite often how it related to the coverage of the United States federal election. And there was a lot of complaining that mainstream media in the U.S. was in the tank for Hillary Clinton. Anything and everything they could write or or broadcast negatively about Donald Trump, they did. Then, of course, on Thursday, the president of the United States, the departing president, Barack Obama, turned around and blamed media for carrying juicy stories I guess the WikiLeaks releases, uh, constantly to harm Hillary Clinton's campaign. So it all depends on where your, where your support is, whether it's if it's for Donald Trump, maybe your position is the mainstream media has been in the tank for Clinton. If it's for Clinton, mainstream media's position has been in the to support Trump, although I, I, I've seen very little, if any, evidence of that. So we're going to talk about mainstream media. We'll take some of your calls, and we've got a lot of comments in this country about our mainstream media. But to uh, kick it off for us is Jane Kirtley, Professor of Media Ethics and Law at the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota. Professor Kirtley has been a guest on this program many times as we've talked about media issues. Jane, thank you very much for making time.
1: Roy, it's a real pleasure to be with you again.
0: So, mainstream media, either in the tank for Hillary Clinton or in the tank for Donald Trump, Um, President Obama claimed media reported each piece of juicy gossip from WikiLeaks, but it wasn't juicy gossip. It was emails by Clinton staff and the Democratic National Committee about how they rigged the deck against Bernie Sanders, or at least some of it. And my sense was that media did choose sides in the U.S. election and with most unabashedly and without apology sacrificing reporting standards in an effort to elect Clinton. Am I seeing things properly or not
1: well i I think there's some truth in your observation some accuracy but i i think it's a little more nuanced than that um going back really to when uh hillary clinton secured the nomination i think it is fair to say and i really am saying this not to be disingenuous that the mainstream media went into the mode that they typically do which is to try to figure out if there are problems with either of these candidates and there was extensive reporting about the Clinton Foundation and the alleged irregularities um, you know pay for play kind of stuff that allegedly occurred uh, when Clinton was still Secretary of State that was recorded uh, reported a lot, and certainly it 's absolutely true that information about the emails and the fact of the hacking of the emails and so forth was also heavily covered now was Trump covered a lot well, of course he was, but I think that is certainly justifiable when you think of it in terms of the fact that it, although he was a you know celebrity entrepreneur businessman as a political animal, he was essentially unknown, and so of course, this was as many people would put it the bright shiny object that was attracting the media because here you suddenly had this maverick who didn't want to follow the rules he was great copy and people whether you loved him or hated him were intensely interested in him so there's no question that he was covered heavily and frankly i think that the trump campaign played the media very very effectively um, getting lots and lots of free publicity. Um, you know, he didn't have to buy advertising time. Hillary Clinton spent millions of dollars on advertising. He really didn't have to because even his rallies were being covered, which in a typical election probably wouldn't have been. Press conferences, yes. But just the rallies that he was holding around the country would not typically be covered live, and yet they were on cable. So obviously it depends on where you sit. But from my perspective, I think that the news media were acting, at least the mainstream media, were acting the way they typically do, which is they're looking for issues. And whether those issues are big, small, justified or not, that's what they're going to be doing. And they're going to say that we're doing this because that's our job, to lift up the rock under which these candidates have been hiding and uncover whatever problems there might be.
0: So the the next issue that I I had with this, and it was something that I thought about throughout the campaign, I didn't say much about it on, uh, on the air, but I will now. I had a real feeling that mainstream media were heavily influenced by social media and mainstream media particularly struggling print trying to appeal to social media subscribers and sell them online subscriptions and the way Absolutely to do that right, right the way Absolutely to do that true. and i think these papers believe i think is to be an echo chamber for prevailing winds of opinion on so- on social media
1: I think you're absolutely right about that. I I don't know anyone who could disagree with that very accurate assessment, in my judgment. The mainstream media are, as we've talked about in the past, in a major crisis, not just a financial one, but trying to figure out who they are and where they go and where they fit in. And I think, as we've discussed before, the reality of the social media world is that it's instantaneous and it's unfiltered. And many, many people, especially younger people, that's their source of information and the mainstream media were desperately trying to catch up when they operate on a model that really just doesn't work that way and so it's not all that surprising to me that they made a complete mess out of it because it's not the way they report news and i think it did not serve anybody's interest it certainly didn't serve their own interest I mean you mentioned the issue of whether the media supported uh, hillary clinton or donald trump I, I guess I should just add as sort of a footnote that certainly most mainstream news organizations' editorial side endorsed Hillary Clinton, but that which you know some Americans don 't necessarily agree with this, but the convention is what the editorial board does and what the news side does are two distinct things, and so you could certainly have your editorial board endorsing Hillary Clinton and still having the news side going after her. but I think the issue you 're raising about being sort of the echo chamber of. Social media is to me a real abrogation of the responsibility of traditional news media who are not supposed to be putting out unfiltered information, who are supposed to be providing context, who are supposed to be verifying what they're reporting, not just saying that somebody just tweeted this or that this was just posted on Facebook, but to make some attempt to find out whether it's true or not. Uh, obviously there are exceptions if we're talking about breaking news or something like that, but in terms of this campaign, I just thought that it was really reprehensible that the mainstream media were essentially playing follow the leader, and the leader were, were those in social media, some of whom I'm sure were engaging in what we might consider to be responsible reporting, but as we're learning now, many of whom were engaged in disinformation of various uh, kinds, or if they weren't deliberately trying to be inaccurate, they were simply being inaccurate because they, they didn't know how to go mm-hmm. about verifying or didn't think they had any responsibility to verify something before reporting it.
0: And what they would do often on uh, major newscasts, Jane, is they would have a little segment set aside to report on what was actually being talked about, if you will, on, uh, on, on, on social media. So that it actually became Twitter? Yeah. It, it became part of the, uh, the story lineup. Jane, if, uh, if, we, uh, if we agree that mainstream media were influenced by social media, and particularly print with the intent of trying to persuade mainstream media players to subscribe to their online services, then we have to get to whether or not accuracy and reporting standards were sacrificed To the bottom line, ethics and believability is all media have to sell. And if you compromise those pillars, and it would be like an auto manufacturer marketing a car without brakes, you're causing yourself ultimately, I think, more problems than you're resolving.
1: It, absolutely true. I mean, one of the, it, the the parallel I would draw would be to my students who might be tempted to plagiarize something and turn it in because that would be expedient. But of course, if they get caught, they've failed the course, they've been reported to the academic misconduct board, they basically ruined their academic careers. And I think you know there there are sometimes things that are perceived as cheap fixes, but they basically undermine the only thing you have to to offer, which is your integrity and again the ability that historically the mainstream media has at least said that it had which is to verify uh... to uh... do what uh... some scholars have called the journalism of verification to try to make sure that what you're reporting is true and to correct any mistakes as as soon as you recognize that you've made them because of course mistakes are made and, and everybody understands that can happen but um, there's really no excuse for it in, in this particular environment where a lot of the errors i think that were made along the way uh, there were they were not particularly time sensitive it was just driven by this notion that well twitter's out there right now or facebook's out there right now or whatever the case might be, and and we have to compete with them and and drag the eyeballs away so that we get clicks to our site, and it's it's not working. Um, I mean, even under the journalism students that that I'm teaching, they are not getting their news from the mainstream media, and I don't see any probability that they're going to go back to that. I mean, they they never were there, and then then this is not going to to attract them. So it's a fool's errand, and I think uh, really unfortunate, because... What it has done is it's played into the hands of those who, I believe, for many, many years on both the left and the right, have made it their mission to try to discredit the conventional media as a news source. Um, again, there's much to criticize there. I'm not saying that there isn't. But the fact remains that this um, complete it's more than skepticism. I mean, it's complete cynicism and disbelief on the part of many people now in the United States towards any form of mainstream media to me is very destabilizing and and very dangerous to a democratic republic because if there isn't at least some sense that we have some shared belief that there are some basic facts that we can all agree on i don't know where we go from here Uh, how can you start a discussion a conversation how can you move forward as a country if no one can believe uh... anything uh... essentially and whether you're on the left or the right at the moment nobody seems to believe what the other side is saying it's it's still such a fractionated uh... society and you know whatever mr trump may or may not be able to do he does not seem to me at least so far to be reaching out very much to those who opposed him in the election
2: Mm.
0: I spoke to a a number of people here in Canada, and I asked them if they could name one U.S. major network news anchor, just the United States news anchors, not one.
1: It doesn't surprise me, you know, the the era that, that I grew up in of people like uh, Huntley, Brinkley, Walter Cronkite. Um, you know, those the, the people that are anchoring the evening news now, I think, are more on a par with the uh, British tradition of, of newsreaders. They are not really seen as the voices of, of wisdom and experience. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that Walter Cronkite was perfect or Huntley and Brinkley were perfect by any means, but they had... Earn the trust of the public, and that degree of trust just doesn't seem to translate to. The people who are you know, uh, frankly i mean it, it's such a cliche but it's true they seem to be more concerned about what clothes they're wearing on camera um you know showing how trendy and current they are sitting at the anchor desk right. with their kindle in one hand and it's just i mean it, it does not in in anybody's mind i don't think uh, create a sense of trust and authority all right
0: jane thank you so very much for the time i wish you the best for christmas in 2017.
1: To you as well, Roy. Roy, thanks so much. All the best.
3: You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on AM
0: 900 CHML. Canada's Prince of Pot, Mark Emery, was arrested and jailed overnight, and then released in Montreal after uh, marijuana shop police raids. Mark Emery operates an illegal chain of marijuana shops named Cannabis Culture, and was arrested uh, during that series of Montreal raids on six new Cannabis Culture Montreal locations which had opened on Thursday. Jody Emery joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, Mark's wife. Jody, is it, is it Mark who opens them, or do you open them together?
4: I help oversee the franchising of these locations. So we don't actually own the shops in Montreal. They are franchise locations from Business Investor. All
0: right, so, so six stores open on Thursday. You must have anticipated police response being closed down and and being charged because you're, you're familiar with how police respond to unlicensed marijuana shops and right after Justin Trudeau declared that until the criminal code changes, Canada's current marijuana laws remain in place and in force. You must have expected something like this.
4: Well, Vancouver has had dispensaries for many, many years and the police haven't done raids. And Vancouver, Victoria and many different jurisdictions have actually moved to allow dispensaries to be regulated and to exist. We also have to remember that the only reason legalization is happening and the only reason medical marijuana is legal in Canada is because dispensaries opened with peaceful civil disobedience, broke the law, got arrested, went to court, and won with the courts ordering the government to provide access. Even the most recent federal court decision had Justice Phelan say that marijuana dispensaries are the heart of access. So I was hoping that Montreal, which sounded like such a progressive, tolerant city, would allow these businesses to operate, first of all, to demonstrate the popularity of these businesses, the fact that you had hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands over the course of the day, lined up in minus 30 temperatures for hours just to be part of that historic grand opening. You have this massive outpouring of public support. You've got the most recent study saying that marijuana consumers want retail storefronts, and you even have Justin Trudeau's government's task force saying that marijuana storefronts should. Jody,
0: why wouldn't why didn't you go? Why wouldn't you go and get the licensing taken care of first? Make sure that There's, the city of Montreal is going to be, you know, acquiescing to this.
4: Well, there are no licenses for marijuana dispensaries available so, yet. I wish it was as easy as opening up a coffee shop. So no, after surp- all. so no
0: surprise then that particularly Denny Coderre, who has. You know, has no problems with an oversized ego and, and likes to get attention, but no surprise that Montreal would react the way it is.
4: Well, Uber operated without licensing, and the government fell over themselves to help work with Uber to make sure they could become legitimate. I would love the opportunity to be legitimate, but right now what we're hearing is that the government's messaging is about maintaining prohibition for the next few years, continuing to allow young people to see their parents getting sent off to jail. We're seeing arrests every single day for even simple possession, hundreds of millions of dollars being spent by police going after peaceful, harmless people and dispensaries when we all know that there's violent, dangerous crime up there with real victims that need to be investigated.
0: Does Mark face, I don't know how many people are being sent to jail every day, but how is, does Mark now face, because he's looking at serious criminal charges here. Do you have a sense that He could find himself back in prison?
4: It's possible Mark could be in prison, and it's also possible I could too. I was arrested for the first time uh, overnight at a hotel by four undercover police officers who asked to take a photo with me like they were fans. I was detained at the hotel. They got a telewarrant. They searched the hotel rooms, and they found nothing. So I was released without charge. Um, But they're still investigating, so be alert that we're probably being listened to right now. But we have to question the absurdity of the leaders of legalization who sacrificed, ran for office. I was a Liberal Party nomination candidate. I promoted them endlessly, raised them support. I helped pass legislation in Washington state. We've been on the front lines of making change happen. And I know that the mayor said, well, this is just a useless stunt, but I would remind him that, in fact, Mark Emery's. Stunts over the years have pushed this conversation forward, have made change happen, and when you have the government telling the pioneers of this industry to sit down and shut up and be quiet and wait and have patience. Well, you know that you know, you know you know you know
0: that you know that Mr. Trudeau is just waiting for the politically opportune time.
4: Yes, and unfortunately, the political commentary he's had is appalling. You know, years ago Trudeau said he was against legalization, but in favor of decriminalization because young people get records. See, that doesn't that doesn't work.
0: work. If you decriminalize, you still have to buy from a very criminalized drug dealer.
4: Well, of course, that's the government's own policy. That I understand that. Yeah? So but we'd you know, like all of but, these people to be able to come out from the shadows, but until the government lets that happen without the threat of arrest, but Jody, everyone has to hide.
0: an interesting story. I spoke with someone the other day, a person whose spouse is not able to purchase approved medical marijuana because the recognized and authorized supplier is out of product because so many patients have been added to the roster, the supplier can't keep up.
4: Exactly. These licensed producers who were set up under the Harper government regime can't even afford or be able to provide the access for patients. Yet these stock market companies that are making money selling marijuana, they are trying to usurp. The industry for recreational marijuana. Let's remember that in British Columbia, marijuana growing for decades has been more valuable and more of an economic grower than fishing and logging and forestry combined. And so you have all of these opportunities that marijuana could provide, but the government is forcing people. To
0: marijuana, marijuana growing has been more financially yes, rewarding than fishing and logging combined
4: in BC. A study from Simon Fraser University, from I think it was even 2004, from many years ago. That we know that most of the marijuana growers that are out there have been doing this for a very long time. There's clearly a massive demand across Canada. Many people are growing marijuana. But I need to remind listeners that court and police documents show ninety five percent of all people in courts for marijuana growing have zero connections to organized crime and are otherwise law abiding.
0: Jody, I thank you for the time. See where this all goes with the charges laid against Uh, Mark, and against you now, as you pointed out. Thanks very much for the time. Uh, We'll talk again for sure. All
4: right. Wish us luck. Peace
0: and (laughs) bye. -bye. Bye-bye. Emery, she and Mark facing criminal charges, including uh, drug trafficking, possession for the purchase of trafficking, and conspiracy.
3: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM
0: 900 CHML. 538 Americans have the final decision on who becomes the president of the United States. 270 have to vote for one of the candidates. And according to the numbers from November 8 election, it's not even close. Donald Trump should simply become the next president of the United States, and that vote should be confirmed tomorrow. The national vote should be confirmed by the Electoral College tomorrow. But there's questions that are being raised again and again about whether that's going to happen. Whether 37 GOP voters, Republican voters, in the college might be swung over to not vote for Donald Trump and then make it a question about who's going to be the president of the United States and turn it over to the House of Representatives. Michael Benarian is one of the electors. He's from Michigan. We've spoken with Michael, I think it was about three or four weeks ago, we spoke with Michael when the issue first became a media event, and since that time, it's become the almost an obsessive story, with the left hoping fervently that 37 Republican voters will not go for Donald Trump, and will vote for somebody else, anybody else. Michael, good to have you back with us.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So you've been lobbied very hard not to vote for Donald Trump. What's happened since you spoke with me on air three weeks ago? How much mail, email, how many calls would you estimate that you've received? Do you have any idea?
5: Yeah, yeah, it's it's actually been crazy. It's really ramped up. Since last we spoke, in the past three days, I've received over 3,000 letters. Um, I just had the mailman come into our house with these big uh, big boxes full of letters. We're going to have to tip them extra this Christmas. But it, uh, it, it's just been flowing in like crazy. Phone calls, my phone's been ringing off the hook, Facebook messages and emails have been coming in by the thousands in that, in that uh, area. So it's just it's really blown up as we've gotten closer to the vote.
0: And... Of those contacts that are made with you, any idea what percentage are urging you to go ahead and vote for Donald Trump as opposed to those telling you not to?
5: I would say that uh, letters in the mail, I've received about three or four supportive letters, and the rest are all uh, begging me to change my vote. Over Facebook, you know, you get a handful more of, of supporters, of uh, people telling me to, to stay, stay with, with the vote and, and encouraging me to, uh, you know, stick with it and not take these people seriously. These people who are, in many cases, are threatening my life to change my vote. But uh, generally speaking, I'd say well over 99% uh, are are begging me to change my vote and trying to demand that I do that.
0: And you're not going to do that?
5: Absolutely not. No. Neither are the 15 other electors from Michigan, and frankly, neither are the 305 other uh, GOP electors. We have only one GOP elector, which I'm sure you'll ask about in a little bit, from Texas that said he won't do it. But I don't think that anybody else besides him will be uh, doing that.
0: How many of the uh, Democratic Electoral College members have lobbied you directly?
5: Hmm. Well, I've been reached out to uh, via mail and email by one particular elector from Washington, uh, his, his name's actually uh, slipping my mind, but he's kind of uh, spearheading a lot of these efforts. He's not the main person, but he's one of the figureheads that's been trying to push for GOP electors to change their vote to somebody else. And uh, he's actually been trying to call for his ability to change his vote from Hillary Clinton to another Republican because their their goal is not just to get. Donald Trump to drop below 270, but they're hoping to change enough Democratic electors, too, to get either Hillary Clinton or a more moderate Republican, uh, in their in their eyes, more moderate Republican uh, elected president.
0: Or so they say.
5: Yes, that's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: You mentioned death threats. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that affect you?
5: Yeah. Well, you know, you can't really let these things get to you. I think uh, at, at, at the end of the day, these people are just bullies. And so if you let them affect your day-to-day life and let them get you down, you're just letting them win. So I've chosen not to not to do that. I, I gather them together. I report them to the police if they're particularly concerning, which I have done, and uh, they're currently opening uh, some investigations on those. So we're just going to try to handle those accordingly and send a message to those people that it's just not okay what they're doing.
0: No, it isn't. Absolutely not. Uh, and, and they need to be dealt with. So, I, so I've been watching uh, U.S. cable news quite a bit because I'm fascinated with what's happening now, particularly with the college. We normally don't hear a great deal about the electoral college. You, you go ahead, you do your thing, and it confirms what the general election has decided. But this time, right. what I'm what I'm seeing the argument that's being put forward by members of the electoral college who are trying to persuade you and other Republicans to change the way you're going to vote. Their position is in this this one Texas. Republican member of the college who's decided he's not voting for Donald Trump they keep saying that they have the ultimate responsibility for democracy that it's their responsibility to to vote it's not really the November 8th election really doesn't matter that much it only matters what the 538 decide because that's what Alexander Hamilton said should happen that's what's in the constitution and that you're protecting the republic
5: yeah yeah, well, I, I think, uh, let's we'll split this up into a couple of things. I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about what the Electoral College is there for. These people think that the Electoral College is around so that a group of 538 elitists can decide the next freedom, uh, leader of the free world. That's not the case at all. The Electoral College is put in a place to ensure that every American has a voice in the process. Because without the Electoral College, with just like a straight national popular vote, what you'd find is big states like California and New York, densely populated, largely populated states, would control the election results in every election. We saw in this particular election, Donald Trump won well over 80% of geographical America, and yet the coastlines in California, particularly three counties in California, are what gave Hillary Clinton that lead in the national popular vote. So the Electoral College is, is put in a place so that states like Wyoming and New Hampshire, small states like that, can have a voice in the process, just like California, New York, and Florida and other large states. So in that, in that respect, I think they've, they've got got about this all wrong. But in particular to that Texas elector, I think what, what he's doing is absolutely shameful because if you look at the facts, what he's the arguments that he's making makes absolutely no sense. He was elected at the Texas GOP state convention to be a elector for the Republican nominee for president and vice president. He signed a legal affidavit saying that he would do so. He then appeared on the Texas ballot during the November 8th election as an elector for Donald Trump and Mike Pence. And the millions of Texans who voted that day voted for him as an elector for Donald Trump and Mike Pence, not as a rogue elector. So it's really deceptive what he's trying to do and what other electors, frankly, on the Democratic side are trying to get other Republicans to do. They're trying to go against the will of the voters. And to think that your opinion is somehow better than the millions and millions of people within your own state is, is absolutely egotistical and wrong. So I, I think they're completely wrong on both of those instances.
0: All right, now, the big story, the, the most recent push, of course, is that Vladimir Putin and the Russians... Affected the outcome of the election. Hillary Clinton is is claiming that uh, Podesta is claiming that uh, the Democrats are claiming that. What do you make of uh, of of this of this uh, position that the Russians and Putin caused Clinton's problems?
5: Mm-hmm. Well, I think these are just attempts to delegitimize uh, Donald Trump as president. I don't think there's any validity to these to these arguments they're making. The sourcing that they're talking about, for example, the New York Times published an article saying that the CIA had found that the Russians had tried to infiltrate the election process by leaking out this information. And their source was one anonymous source. That's all that they had to go off of. And that source also said that the Russians tried to hack into the RNC, which was not true. So if that's the standard that we're we're living by, an anonymous source, then I think they have to try a lot better than that. I think it's absolutely wrong for any foreign government to try to infiltrate an election, and if anything like that happened or there is uh, we caught wind that that was happening, I expect my government to investigate that thoroughly, but to try to delegitimize the next president of the United States and his presidency because of your own failings, in particular with Hillary Clinton, is absolutely wrong. She presented the wrong direction for the country, and the majority of Americans in these Midwestern states that she needed to win disagreed with her view of the future. And that's why she lost. She lost because of those things. She lost because she was not trustworthy. They didn't like what she was laying out. So to do that is absolutely wrong and I find it funny how she said during the election how dangerous it would be and how how horrible for our democracy if you didn't accept the results of the election had she won. But since she didn't win, now it's okay for her to try to delegitimize the election results and attack the election results and the president elect. And I think it's wrong.
0: I uh, received an email from a listener a few minutes ago, and uh, the point was made. If the Russians, in fact, helped uh, Donald Trump win the election, how is it possible, then, that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote? Mm-hmm. I thought it was a good well, question.
5: He, he, the, yeah, the, the, the interesting thing is is that these things that are coming out are not even saying that the, the Russians you know, infiltrated our voting systems and and made it so that they flipped votes from Democrat to Republican. Because if you actually look at a lot of the voting machines that are used, the electronic ones aren't even attached to the Internet. In order to uh, hack into those, you'd have to be there, pry open the back of them, and uh, hack them with a computer in the voting area, which just wouldn't happen. You can't do it beforehand because they test those machines on Election Day to make sure that there's been no tampering. So what they're talking about, essentially, is the hacking that occurred during the DNC. And they're saying the information that came out changed voters' minds as to why uh, they should vote for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. But again, these are unsubstantiated uh, accusations. And uh, again, if the Russians did hack into the DNC or other private American servers, that's absolutely wrong. We should investigate that and hold them accountable. But to say that that's the reason Donald Trump won the election is just wrong. It's, it's, It's not true, and it's dangerous for them. be delegitimizing the president like that, or president-elect rather.
0: Michael, final question for you. How does the voting actually take place tomorrow? What do you do?
5: Yeah, so we all go to our respective state capitals for Michigan. It's in Lansing. We have a special session of the Senate, and at that session, uh, they do a roll call vote, and we nominate uh, the candidate for president and vice president. In our case, it would be Donald Trump and Mike Pence, and the 16 Michigan electors cast those votes formally. They are certified by the governor and sent to Washington, D.C., where they are read, I believe, January 26th, or January 6th, rather, on a joint session of Congress by the vice president.
0: Michael Benarian, thank you so much for the time. Uh, You're 22 years of age. I hear the kind of political determination and savvy in you that I think a lot of people are going to be hearing a lot about Michael Benarian in the years to come.
5: Thank you for having me. Thanks.
0: All the very best.
5: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Hector McMillan, the mayor of Trent Hills, Ontario, Dwayne Eckert of uh, Saskatchewan, Justin Massotti of Hamilton, Ontario, three Canadians were battling cancers which carried them an assurance of death. According to Canadian doctors, they were going to die. They each requested different treatments. Nano pancreatic surgery for Hector McMillan and Dwayne Eckert and DMSO and chemotherapy, plus additional therapies by 17-year-old Justin Massotti to battle his rare form of brain cancer. Again, they were all denied by Canada's medical system as experimental. Mayor McMillan and uh, the Eckert family flew to Germany for the nano-knife surgery by Dr. Matthias Berth, who has conducted more than 100 such surgeries. He told us that on air last weekend. While Justin Massotti and his father Mike made their way to a Tijuana clinic in Mexico, Hector McMillan is back in Canada. The Eckerts are returning, and Justin Masotti remains at the Mexican clinic with his father Mike. Uh, all are doing significantly better. Yet provincial health care systems in Ontario and Saskatchewan refuse to fund their out-of-country medical expenses. Uh, we're having trouble getting through to the Massadis in uh, in Tijuana, but we'll keep on trying. But we do have Mayor Hector McMillan from uh, Trent Hills in in Ontario. Hector, you were, the, you were the first person who alerted us to what was going on, and, it, and, and if you had not been as direct as you were by the f- to the fact that you were being denied the uh, nanonife surgery, even though the equipment existed in the city of Toronto, in a Toronto hospital, who knows whether um, Dr. Burt would have become as familiar as he is increasingly with Canadian patients, and who knows what would have happened. So you made a lot of things happen with your determination.
3: Thanks, Roy. Good to talk to you again. Um,
0: Tell us I, first of all how you're doing.
3: Well, I'm excellent. Do I sound like a dying man to you?
0: No, you don't. I'm great. So you you feel good. You're um, there's there's no there are no there are no, uh, no no issues that are ongoing and. Uh... Nope, I'm fine. Just like that.
3: Just like that.
0: And the surgery was about a month ago.
3: Oh, it's more than that now. Um, October sixth.
0: So you were about to say something, Heck, before I interrupted and asked you to tell us how you were doing.
3: Well, I was just going to say that uh, we, we've lost track now between my sister and I because we haven't compared notes, but we know we've we've helped um, send over 30 patients to, uh, to Strolson. Uh, some haven't got there yet, but are, but are booked. Some are already home, and as you said, the Eckert family is there, and they're getting ready to come home.
0: Um, Sean, how's your dad doing? Sean Eckert joins us from Germany. His father had the surgery by uh, Dr. Bird as well. How's your dad doing?
3: Good.
6: Improving every day. Uh, IRE nanonife surgery was on December 1st, and he had to have a second follow up procedure that scoped and flushed out uh, his stomach cavity uh, about a week ago. So he's doing good, and we're, we're set to fly out this Friday and geared up and each day he's improving and we've seen probably half a dozen Canadian families in the three weeks that we've been over here uh, book in, come over. I've helped out two more that are planning to come as well or looking at the research to come over here. So I believe that the Canadian uh, Airways will be busy bringing pancreatic patients to uh, Dr. or
0: Professor Burton. Uh, Hector, how, how did you find out about Dr. Bird?
3: Um, my sister found it on research and as well as uh, friends uh, pointed it out to me through uh, the uh, crowdfunding page that the uh, uh, Friends of the Fire Department had set up. Um, and uh, we were already underway and, and, and uh, working on a, a, going to Dr. Martin in Kentucky. And when we realized that we were never going to be able to re- afford the hospital care in Kentucky, uh, that's when we contacted Dr. Burt.
0: Okay, let's back it up, uh, Heck, and tell us, please, from the beginning, how things developed with you. When, when did you first found, find out that you had pancreatic cancer, and what was, oh. offered, to, what was offered to you in the way of, of medical treatment? And, and then how did the, remind us how your story developed.
3: Well, a year ago, August, I was having back pain. And um, having previously been a, a big guy, 300 pounds, um, I was used to back pains. So I didn't think much of it. And after a couple of months it started to get worse and I noticed that it was significantly worse about 20 minutes after reading um, after a couple of nights in a row um, I decided to google it and uh, every site came up said that I had pancreatic cancer or sorry uh, pancreatitis so I got a hold of my surgeon and he ordered a CT and they said yes there is pancreatitis but there's also a shadow and two more escalated CTs and they told me that I had um, uh, pancreatic cancer as well, and three lymph nodes that were active in my left upper chest. They declared me as stage four. Told me I'd already had my lifetime supply of radiation when I had esophageal cancer um, six years ago now, and said, um, "Sorry, there's nothing we can do other than give you uh chemotherapy, and uh, you've got if you stay on if you stay on the, the chemotherapy, you'll live a maximum of 11 months." I was not able to stay on the, on the Fulpirinox. Uh, I was only able to do five treatments of that, and that's when I started using alternative remedies, uh, noni juice, graviola drops, uh, cannabis oil, alkaline water, chaga tea. I threw the kitchen sink at it with natural remedies. And um, lo and behold, uh, I had a, uh, a PET scan done, and I no longer had uh, cancerous lymph nodes in my chest. And I said, well, that requires a downgrade. And they refused to downgrade me, even though I had letters from uh, Dr. Martin in Kentucky and a letter from my surgeon here in Ontario stating that I should be downgraded to, to stage two, maybe a stage three. And uh, OHIP refused to recognize that. And they just wrote me off.
0: And this was about the time that we started speaking with you, right? That's right. And so you found Dr. Burt, and you made the uh, necessary arrangements to go and see him, and there were quite a number of people who contributed to, uh, to, your, uh, to your costs at um, GoFundMe.com. Which, Absolutely. Which helped out uh, a great deal for you. And, and, but the province of Ontario insisted and maintained, even though you were in touch with them and you, and you dealt with, uh, with OHIP, uh, they insisted that they would not provide you with, uh, with, with funding. Talk to us about that, please.
3: Well, I was going through an appeal process because I received a, a very firm no that I was denied from, from OHIP. So I started going through the Health Services and Review Board appeal process, and um, Dr. Thompson representing OHIP said that uh, it would be far in my favor if I had a letter from an Ontario physician stating that uh, my, my uh, cancer should be downgraded rather than an American one which would carry little weight, he said. Um, So I went ahead and got that letter and submitted it. And um, they held a third case conference telephone call afterwards and disputed the letter stating that um, I now required a fine needle biopsy of the lymph nodes for me to prove that they're not cancerous, even though the PET scan in Ottawa said they weren't. But previously, i had seen a Dr. Sean Cleary in, uh, at, at Princess Market in Toronto, and uh, he also said that a, a fine needle biopsy would prove it to him that I should be uh, downgraded and get back inside the Ontario standard of care box. But there was only two doctors that were capable of performing such a procedure, and they just don't have time for you.
0: Is that what you were told?
3: That's what I was told. They don't have time for you. Yeah. Well, basically, once you're, once you're stage four, they pay little attention to you. They just write you off.
0: So you were offered essentially then palliative care. Given a, you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but given a timeline, offered palliative ter- care, and that was it.
3: My final report before I started taking things into my own hands specifically said recommended palliative chemotherapy. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on
0: AM 900 CHML. Sean, tell us your tell us your, your father's story and how you how you how you made it from Saskatchewan. How you went from Saskatchewan to Germany. What was the path? How did it happen?
6: Well, our path began. Uh, our situation began back in April with uh, let's say a cumbersome diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. When I say cumbersome, it entailed sitting in hospital beds in hallways of ER rooms, missed appointments for tests because doctors or ambulance forgot to pick up the patient from other hospitals to take him to the testing facilities, staying in a room with a psychiatric patient that was not comfortable for 24 hours a day, very stressful situation for our entire family, Concluded with the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, um, we were very urgently looking for some form of treatment or plan to be put together. And when it was comments were coming back that we've only had your paperwork for a week, we'll call you when we're ready. That's when we got a little bit aggressive and packed up and took off to the Mayo Clinic with our all our testing results down in Phoenix Arizona to get a second opinion and make sure that there was nothing that the Mayo Clinic could do down there we learned a lot about pancreatic cancer and chemotherapy we were able to get a oncologist to give us the a plan that he would do at the Mayo Clinic and then was in touch with the Alan Blair Cancer Center in Regina to fast track our chemotherapy treatments so then we came back from the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix Arizona Returned to Regina smarter more educated on pancreatic cancer and the treatment plan began the chemotherapy similar to Hector did five rounds of chemotherapy throughout the summer and the results were coming back that there was minimal to no shrinkage of the tumor at that point we were basically told, here's the doomsday clock for your dad, hang it around his neck, and that's all we can do. Combining that situation and having that emotional, very tough conversation with your family and the oncologist, what we learned in the Mayo is that the test should be done about two to three months at minimum after chemotherapy to see if there's any reduction in the tumor size. So we really pushed for additional rounds of chemotherapy on the strong strong dosage because dad was uh, doing well as one could be under that strong recipe. So as that was happening we were granted the extra two chemotherapy rounds. Um, What Saskatchewan Health wanted to do for us was put us on a maintenance chemotherapy till the clock ran out. while we pushed for those other two rounds we started doing heavy research on alternative methods and in that time frame there was also some tests called for a CT and an MRI to check on that tumor again so two things happened in this point in time is the results came back that the tumor was shrinking after round 6 so then the oncologists at the Allen Blair really wanted to continue with this chemotherapy because all of a sudden we're seeing results not kind of corresponded with what we learned at the Mayo in that you need at least two to three months of chemotherapy to see anything happening. Mm-hmm. At that time, we were doing the research on alternative met- methods and came across the IRE NanoKnife and happened to learn that there was a machine in Saskatoon and there was a machine in Toronto. So this definitely piqued our interest. And we had to educate the oncologists that this technology existed within Canada and in the world. So it so happened that the oncologist ran into the surgeon from Saskatoon that had done, I think, seven procedures with this machine in Saskatoon and kind of laid our story on him. For a few days, there was some hope that we were going to get this treatment in Saskatoon with the IRE nanoknife machine there. Right. Just as fast as the hope was there. It was then pulled away and it was stated to us, well, if you shell out the fifteen grand to run the machine in Saskatoon, we could, could possibly do the procedure. So they asked you for well,
0: fifteen they asked you for fifteen thousand dollars.
6: Yes. And keep in mind this correspondence was never direct yeah. from Sask Health. Everything was an indirect line from the oncologists and coming back through that form. So it was a, a, a very muddy communication line. So we said yes, we would pay the 15000 because that is significantly cheaper than coming to Germany and had a hope of having it done and just as fast as that hope was there it was pulled away so at that time we had to fast track the Germany tour and that's when our on- oncologist in Sask Health ba- basically said we're not going to fire up the machine in Saskatoon for at least three to four months so you better get to Germany so that's when we started our our uh, logistics arrangements. We had to go off of chemotherapy for at least three weeks. We got in contact with Hector McMillan. We got in contact with Colleen, another lady from Canada, who had the procedure. We started putting our research. Right. Sean, package.
0: Sean, I'm going. To, Sean, I'm going to have to take a break in about a minute. So can you just? I'm sure. sorry, I don't want to rush you, but can you just give us an idea of how you got to Germany?
6: So, yeah, combined all our research and our logistics research from Hector and a couple of fellow Canadians who have been over here and started uh, packing our bags and making that plan, really put a lot of faith in something that we didn't know much about but heard uh, positive results from fellow Canadians and said, you know, let's take this doomsday clock off of our dad's neck and let's get over here and get this monster removed from his body, which it has been, was removed December 1st. Dealing with some regi- residual recovery, but nothing like dealing with cancer and counting down the clock. So it's two thumbs up, and it's it going to be the best Christmas.
3: For- You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900
0: CHML. Mike, uh, how is Justin's health now and uh, since the last time we spoke? and uh, Talk to us about the progress that has been made. Justin
7: Justin's health continues to improve. He's doing exercises. He keeps walking. Um, he's still blind, but it continues to improve, and his eating continues to improve, so it, uh, the, the treatment is working.
0: And uh, tell us again when this all began and and how you found your way to Tijuana, Mexico. At what point did you say... We're not accepting what you're telling us the only options are in Canada, in Ontario. Walk us through that, please.
7: Well, you know, we, we went through a period of time where, I mean, we were told that there was no treatment for Justin. Basically, none of the treatments were going to work. Maybe chemo might a- extend it. So, at first, we didn't, you know, we, we were an average uh, person, you know, Canadians that didn't really know anything about... Uh, we had to trust the doctors and what they were saying. Once Over time, we learned... Uh, what we needed to do, we found out there were places around the world. And once uh, Justin's condition got to a point where he was going, you know, he was close to dying, we uh, we found the clinic in Mexico, and um, we we came down here.
0: And the only option that you were offered in Canada, as I recall you telling us on the air, and we and you know, I've spoken also personally is that uh, Justin was offered chemotherapy, and he was offered to stay in a hospital in Hamilton, but it wasn't going to change things. This was just this was going to be done in a palliative way, and he was going to die. This wasn't a curative effort.
7: That's right. So we were going to get chemotherapy without the DMSO or the other 15 treatments that we get down here. And, yes, the doctor was very clear. He's going to die. It's not going to help.
0: So they were going to pay for the hospital room, they were going to pay for the chemotherapy that wasn't going to help or extend Justin's life, but they're not paying for the treatments that are improving Justin's life in Mexico. That's correct. And he's put on 40 pounds in weight or had the last time we talked?
7: Yes, and he's put on another 10 pounds since. And he's doing uh, physiotherapy to get himself in shape. He's building muscle mass. Um, Yeah, He's he's getting in better shape.
0: Justin uh, you can hear me right yeah how are you how are you feeling Justin
7: oh I'm feeling so much better
0: you sound even I mean you sound better than the last time I talked to you
7: thank you that's what people tell me as well
0: and uh, we saw the video of you doing uh, exercises running in place and then you did that kind of cool soccer move the little run to the left the little run to the light right you uh, you're still doing all that stuff
7: Yes, yeah, I'm working
0: out with uh weights too, you know, all my muscle back. Wow. Um let me do this, Mike. I'm gonna put you uh right. Hey, we're gonna we're just gonna pull uh, we're just gonna take you guys off the air for a moment. Just pull down the pots. And uh we'll come back to our guests, but I want you to listen to the interview that I did last weekend with uh, Dr. Matthias Bert from Stralsund from the hospital in Germany when I started talked to Dr. Bert about the pancreatic nanoknife surgery that he has done for Canadians like Dwayne Eckert and Mayor Hector McMillan here's how it went how many nano pancreatic surgeries have you done and what's the success rate
2: so at the moment we have started 2 years ago and we have treated Uh, roughly more than 100 patients meanwhile so the success rate is a little bit uh, hard to describe because uh, the run following the procedure is very short at the moment but we still have some patients from the beginning two years ago which which are still uh, cancer free at the moment or at least we, we do not have any signs for a progress. But, of course, there are some other patients which have developed metastasis or even a local recurrence following the treatment as well.
0: The nano knife surgery, explain that to us, please, and, and, and what does it offer the pancreatic cancer patient? Because without that surgery, from what I understand, the only thing that's going to happen is they're going to die.
2: That's right. That's right. I think it's, it's, it's common that pancreatic cancer is the cancer or, or one of the cancers probably with the worst prognosis at all. So the only, the only choice at the moment is to resect the tumor completely. But even if you can resect the tumor completely, so long-term, term survival is just uh, or it is just uh, possible in 20 to 25% at all unfortunately so even in these patients many become in their further future metastasis or even a local recurrence the prognosis is very bad if you do not can resect the tumor and you have a so called local advanced tumor mostly because the tumor is growing around the vessels the vessel for the bowel, for the small bowel, which is called mesenteric artery, or the hepatic artery, which runs to the to the liver, and is responsible for the blood blood supply of the liver. And in these cases, which you cannot resect the tumor, uh, the only choice at the moment is uh, chemotherapy, which might be prolong the survival very shortly. Otherwise. There, there is a radiation therapy, but actually without bad results as well. So you- in, in this case, with local advanced tumor, the, the irreversible electroporation, which uses short, repetitive, uh, non-thermal, high-energy pulses of electricity, uh, this can destroy tumor cells.
0: So the electrical charge it, destroys the, the tumor cell.
2: Yes. Yes. So you, you're under general anesthesia. You have to put in electrodes, needles, uh, at the direct, the uh, n on 2 the on the border, on the tumor. And uh, then you have some short pulses of electricity between the needles for several minutes. Yeah? And... These pulses destroy the tumor, and leaving the surrounded tissue, veins, nerves, and ducts unaffected. So healthy cells and tissue can grow back again and regenerate within this area. Uh,
0: Dr. Bert, is nano pancreatic surgery widely available in Germany and in Europe generally? Because you know, and I don't expect you to criticize the Canadian healthcare system, but, but you do know that Mayor McMillan... Mr. Eckert and the Ontario patient on whom you operated this week were not able to obtain nano knife surgery for their pancreatic surgeries in this country.
2: Yeah, so uh, we do it in an open fashion, and in this procedure, what's what is very important is that you have to have a lot of experience and competence in intraoperative ultrasound, which is which is necessary to guide the needle placement, and that's why we are the hospital in Germany which have started with that technique in the past but meanwhile in the last two years a lot of big hospitals uh, visited us especially university hospitals and I know that there are some other universities which just started with the nanonife treatment as well So I expect that in the, in the further future more clinics Will uh, will start with that technique.
0: What do you need to know about a Canadian patient before you, my degree, to go ahead with the surgery? What what has to happen?
2: So what I what I have to know is, of course, the exact stadium of the of the pancreatic cancer. So, uh, it's important that the pa- that the pancreatic cancer have no spread in other parts of the body especially in the liver or on the peritoneum it's a, it's actually a contraindication of course there are some patients not so many but some which have a very long stable run even with some metastasis then you can you can think or discuss that, that topic but actually it's just for local locally advanced pancreatic cancer Without any metastasis. All right. So this is the first point. Right. The second one, of course, is that the patient has to be in a in a stable condition. The general condition condition of the patient uh, must good enough to travel and to have this treatment.
0: All right, Dr. Bert, I, th- I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. The Stralsund uh, Hospital. That's S-T-R-A-L-S-U-N-D. I'll tweet it. And put it on my webpage in Germany, Dr. Matthias Bert. Thank you so much, and thanks for taking care of our Canadians, Dr. Bert. No problem. So there's Dr. Matthias Bert as we spoke last uh, last weekend. Heck, as you uh, as you hear, Dr. Bert, what are you feeling? What are you thinking, Hector? Yeah. When you uh, hear Dr. Uh, Bert, what are you feeling? What are you thinking?
3: Well, he, he's uh, he's a reasonable man as well as a professional, and he did what I expected doctors in Ontario would do and said, yes, your lymph nodes are no longer active, you're a candidate.
0: Sean, what about you? When you hear the doctor who operated on your dad after you told us what happened uh, in Saskatchewan, what emotions do you have when you hear Dr. Burt?
6: Well, he took us from one side of the scale to the other. The fact of the matter is eight weeks ago, we heard sayings like quality of life and maintenance chemo to two weeks ago hearing i I believe I've removed the entire tumor.
3: That's what Professor Burt does. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.